Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your love. We're thankful for um, the covenant that you have established with us, Father, in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of your Son, Jesus Christ, this covenant of grace. Father, what a blessing it is to know that you are faithful, that you always keep your word, and indeed that you will do that for us today, um, as you will by your Spirit, draw near to us, and draw us into your presence, and renew again that same covenant of grace um, today as we uh, worship this Lord's Day. Uh, Father, give us grace now as we um, consider um, the ways of your word. Um, give us wisdom now. We ask it by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, friends, today we continue our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we come certainly to one of the um, more significant chapters in terms of the um, uniqueness of the confession. Um, the Westminster Confession is really the first of the Protestant confessions to really formalize um, the doctrine of the covenant. Um, it certainly is building on the work of um, prior confessions and theologians, but really kind of comes together in the Westminster Confession in a, in a um, unique way, um, in a way that is really um, at the heart of what it means for us to be um, Reformed uh, believers, is this idea of covenant theology. And we'll only begin to scratch the surface today of what we might say about that topic, but um, hopefully we can ponder a little bit of its significance and its um, and its value to us um, as believers. Um, Zachary Yersinus, um, who is the um, primary author of the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, which predates the Westminster by about 100 years, um, or 80 years or so, um, he says, God's covenant is a mutual promise and agreement between God and men, in which God gives assurance to men that he will be merciful to them, and on the other side, men bind themselves to God in this covenant that they will exercise repentance and faith and render such obedience as will be acceptable to him. I love the way that he puts that, that a covenant is the means by which God gives assurance to men that he will be merciful to them. Um, in my um, for my money, that is one of the great benefits of um, thinking through the covenants of Scripture and how they um, relate to us today. Um, it gives us assurance of God's mercy. Um, how do we know that God is merciful? Um, because he has sworn himself to be. He has made promises about his mercy and his love and his forgiveness. And he always, always keeps his promises in the Old Testament, the word um, chesed um, is a word that is used again and again. It shows up particularly in the Psalms. I think of Psalm uh, 136, which has this repetitive chorus of the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And it walks through creation. It walks through um, the deliverance from um, Egypt. It walks through um, the, the conquest of the promised land, um, all of Israel's history to that point, And it and again and again, um, in each verse, um, the, the leader of the psalm, you know, says another thing about what God does, um, that he, he delivered his people out of Egypt and the, 
the chorus responds, and his steadfast love endures forever. Again and again, that chorus repeats throughout that psalm, if you know it. And that word that is translated steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. Um, and uh, what chesed is, is covenant-keeping faithfulness, is what chesed is. And um, it is such a gift to know that our God has that kind of character. Um, uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, um, let every man be a liar and God be true. Um, God be true and every man a liar. That that is one of the fundamental things that is true about God, that he keeps his word, he keeps his covenant, um, he never fails in that. Um, and so I think a practical benefit, not, I mean, one of the benefits is just understanding more accurately how the scriptures relate to one another, and we'll talk about some of that. Um, and, and our place in redemptive history. Um, but I think one of the other practical benefits of thinking about the covenants is just this, this confidence that we should have about um, God's faithfulness and the way that we can count on him uh, to be faithful to us. As we think about covenants in Scripture, um, typically in a covenant there are two parties, um, uh, usually a, a greater party and a lesser party. Um, there are um, promises that are made in a covenant, um, there are conditions um, to the covenant, and then there are penalties. We'll look at that uh, sort of format as we think about um, some of the covenants in the scripture. Um, the basic understanding of Reformed theology that you should know, um, and this is an important one in terms of the modern landscape of um, evangelicalism, is that there are only two, two and only two basic covenants in scripture, fundamental covenants. Um, the covenant of works or the covenant of life that was made between God and Adam in the garden, and then the covenant of grace that was made um, immediately upon the event of the fall, which was made, as our larger catechism says, um, with Christ as the second Adam, and in him all the elect as his seed. Um, those are the two covenants in Scripture fundamentally. Um, the, there are, and under that covenant of grace, there are multiple administrations or renewals or expansions of that covenant. Um, the Abrahamic covenant, or the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant, um, and then the new covenant, or the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant that our Lord um, brings in himself. Um, but we want to say as Reformed Christians that those are all um, administrations of the same covenant of grace, overarching covenant of grace, that they're not uh, each of those are not new covenants in the sense that they um, bring something that is fundamentally different than the one before. They all fit under this umbrella of the covenant of grace um, that God um, has made with his people. And that's a significant difference with, for example, dispensationalism. Um, let me jump into what the confession teaches about God's covenant with man. I love this first paragraph in chapter 7. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. What that chapter is saying is that God could make the world um, and make it wonderful and beautiful 
and as reasonable creatures, um, we would still owe him our obedience, um, but no relationship with him, no communion with him, no, um, as the divines put it, no fruition of God as our blessedness and reward could exist unless he voluntarily condescends to us, unless he stoops, unless he leans down, unless he um, comes down to us and um, initiates that relationship. And the confession is saying that God has done this condescension, this initiation, this reaching towards us. Um, He's been pleased to do this by way of covenanting with us, by binding himself to us in certain promises um, um, which he has made purely, as they put it, because he was pleased to, because it was his pleasure, because he desired to do that, not because we um, manipulated him or tricked him or did something to um, earn that, but it's purely um, pleasure and God's own voluntary um, decision. His condecision um, is what um, uh, initiates his relationship with us that makes it possible for him to be um, our blessedness and our reward to have communion with him. And he has always done this, we believe, in the scriptures, not in some arbitrary way, not in a way that says, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to relate to you in this way today and in that way tomorrow. Uh, No, God has always, because of that love and character of who he is, he has done it by way of a covenant, by sworn vows that he has made, promises he has made um, to us um, and to our children as well. Um, any, any questions may that I've said so far in terms of just covenants in general, the whole concept of covenant theology in the Bible? Anything to say or ask? All right, I'll keep moving. The first covenant that God made with man, we see here in the second paragraph, was a covenant of works. We'll talk about that title in a minute. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. This is the covenant in the garden um, that takes place in Genesis 1 and 2. Wherein life was promised to Adam and to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So in the first covenant, we have two parties. We have God and we have man. Adam as um, the, the public person, as the larger catechism puts it. Um, So not just Adam as an individual, but Adam as the federal head of humanity. Um, God covenants with all of the human race through Adam and in Adam. Um, So two parties, and there are promises. The promise that Adam receives is that he will have life, um, that he will um, enjoy blessed communion with God, that he will um, receive the fruits of um, the the world, that he will um, um, be blessed in that way. Um, There are conditions. The condition for Adam in the covenant of works or covenant of life um, is that he would be obedient. Um, God um, gave Adam um, several positive commands in Genesis 1, right, to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion um, over the earth. Um, But he also gave him a negative command, so to speak. He said, um, um, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for the day that you eat of it you shall die. Um, That was the, the fundamental prohibition that exists And of course, remember that um, prohibition was given in the context of um, a great um, offer, right? All the the plants that that bear fruit are yours to eat. And he says, basically, all of creation is yours to enjoy and partake of, um, except for this 
the fruit of this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, so the condition of the covenant of works or covenant of life um, was obedience. And the threat, of course, the penalty for the breaking of the covenant um, is death. And um, God makes it very clear in Genesis 2. And, um, of course, we see that worked out um, in the fall. I want to say a word about this language for um, of covenant of works that is used um, here in the confession. Um, the first thing to say is that the confession is not consistent, or the, the writers of the, the standards themselves are not consistent in this terminology in terms of restrict. They don't, the writers of the divines don't restrict themselves to calling this the covenant of works. And part of the reason for that is because this is um, what we might call theological language, not biblical language. Um, nowhere in the Bible um, is this word um, uh, covenant of works used, right? That doesn't appear um, in the scriptures. In fact, if you read Genesis 1 through 3 very closely, you'll find that the word covenant is never actually used um, in those chapters. Um, and so what the divides are doing, what we're doing um, is we are applying theological categories um, as we understand all the scriptures together and saying um, even though the, the word covenant is not used, we can say there was a covenant because of all the things I just talked about in terms of parties and promises and um, conditions and um, penalties. Um, and, um, but in terms of the language that we use to describe that covenant, um, there is freedom. Um, there, we should not get too hung up, I think, on terminology um, as long as we're all talking about the same thing. Um, some people have referred to this covenant as the Adamic covenant. Um, the covenant um, of creation is another, thing that it's another title that's used um, to describe this covenant that takes place in the garden. Um, and even the confession itself uses the word, the phrase covenant of life. You'll see in Westminster Larger um, question 20, um, the next uh, section there in your handout, uh, what was the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created? Um, answer, the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created was the placing him in paradise, appointing him to dress it, giving him liberty to eat the fruit of the earth, putting the creatures under his dominion, and ordaining marriage for his help, affording him communion with himself, <clears throat> instituting the Sabbath, the Sabbath predates, of course, the fall, entering into a covenant of life with him, um, the, the writers of the uh, standards say here, upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience of which the tree of life was a pledge and forbidding to eat of the tree of knowledge good, of good and evil upon the pain of death. So, and there's the shorter cate catechism also uses this phrase, the covenant of life um, to refer to um, uh, the, uh, uh, this covenant was made with Adam in the garden. Now, Sinclair Ferguson, um, and I agree with him, as I was listening to his lectures this week and preparing for our lesson today, he makes this comment. He said, now covenant of works, I'm not going to say it in the same accent, but he said covenant of works is not the most felicitous phrase that might have been used by the writers of the confession. And I, I tend to agree with that. Um, I, I think the reason why they call this the covenant of works is because they're emphasizing Adam's obligation to obey, um, to remain in personal and um, perfect obedience to God in order to maintain 
um, the covenant on his end. Um, and so that's why it's titled the covenant of works. I, I do think covenant of life um, is a better term um, uh, for it because, as we'll talk about in a minute, I think the, the language of works can imply that somehow Adam was earning something um, in this covenant, and I don't think that's true in any way. Um, we have to read that language, covenant of works, through the first paragraph where it talks about any covenant that God makes is based on what? Not our merit, not our worth, but on God's voluntary condescension um, and drawing near to us. We could have no relationship with him um, in any way, in any terms, even before, and, this, and it's important to say, the first paragraph in this chapter is not talking about humanity post-fall. It's talking about humanity before the fall, right? Before their sin entered the world. It's saying God, the only way we can have a relationship with God where he can be our fruition and our reward, even before sin enters the world, is only if God voluntarily, voluntarily condescends to us, an act of voluntary condescension by God to draw near. Um, and for that reason, I would prefer the word covenant of life. And that title for the uh, first covenant um, emphasizes, of course, the promise that is given in the covenant, which is life, eternal life, was promised um, to Adam if he kept the covenant. Whatever we call this covenant, and remember any word that we use will be extra biblical, and so we should not get overly hung up on uh, terminology, I don't think. The covenant with Adam was fundamentally loving, merciful, and generous. Loving, merciful, and generous. Um, again, pre-fall, no sin. Um, human beings are perfect at this point in terms of their, um, their moral uh, character. Um, but still, the covenant that God makes with Adam is fundamentally loving, merciful, and generous and is based on God's voluntary condescension. Um, Adam in no way could have, if he had kept that covenant, earned his life, his salvation, by his faithfulness. Um, he was merely called to be obedient um, in grateful response to God's kindness. And I think that's something I really want to emphasize about this first um, covenant. All right, any thoughts about that? The covenant of works, the covenant of life, this covenant that God makes with Adam in the garden. Questions? Yeah, Lauren. Exactly. That's what I mean by earn. Yeah. Yeah. God did not. Um, the whole thing was based on God's voluntary condescension. His, his, Adam could not have merited in some fundamental sense. He would have been given. Yeah. He would have been given eternal life as a gift. Um, he would have eaten. I, th I mean, all of this is speculative, right? <laughs> in terms of what would have happened had Adam not sinned. Um, but yeah, he would have been given access to the tree of life. I mean, most Reformed theologians see, and again, this is speculative, right? The scriptures don't answer this question, like what would have happened had, had Adam not sinned. Um, but most Reformed theologians agree that there was a kind of probationary period that Adam was meant to go through and experience. We don't know how long that, the scriptures don't tell us anything about this, uh, might have lasted. Um, but, but if he had been obedient, if he had trusted God, if he had been um, um, uh, uh, ob yeah, obedient in that way, um, then he would have 
um, moved into a place where he would be given free access to the tree of life and um, would have um, experienced some kind of glorification um, in um, his state. And I think that's really, that's a significant thing about Reformed theology in terms of what we think the covenant of grace um, accomplishes. The covenant of grace does not just sort of put us back into the garden um, with Jesus as our head. It actually moves us beyond the garden as we think about the consummation of creation. Um, we become an, an in, impeccable, um, unable to sin, right, um, in the, gar- or in the, the glorified um, new creation. Um, Adam, obviously, in the garden was capable of sin. Um, that is very clear from what took place. Um, but that we believe that there, there is something better than being able to sin. What is better than being able to sin is, is not being able to sin, not being able to fall. Um, and that is what is promised to us in the new heavens and the new earth and the consummation of creation. And we believe, uh, we, well, I shouldn't say we believe, the confession nowhere addresses this explicitly. Some of us speculate um, that likely Adam would have moved into that state eventually if he had been faithful. Now, in God's providence, that's not what the Lord um, did, and that is not the way he decided to glorify himself. And, uh, I, you know, although the, the plan that he takes is one that um, involves a lot of um, uh, human suffering and all of those things, I think we can trust him that it is the right, the right path, um, the path um, where um, God delivers um, us from our sin. We'll talk about that in a minute with the covenant of grace. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, and that's a, you know, there's no, I don't think there's any fundamental, Eric Eric is asking about, is it possible or didn't Adam and Eve already have access to the tree of life um, before um, the fall, before their sin? And certainly, Eric, I think that's possible. Um, I think, I think you could argue different things about that. Um, The scripture certainly doesn't answer that question in a fundamental way. Um, I, the way that I tend to think about it is the way I just described, that um, there have been a probation uh, probationary period where Adam um, had the opportunity to obey and to trust God and if he had done so perfectly he would have um, been given access to the tree of life after that but we're all in the realm of speculation here yes ma'am Sarah no different yeah yeah yes and if you remember in Genesis 3 after the sin um, of um, Adam and Eve um, and their they receive the curses and all of those things. They're clothed with animal skins and they're driven out of the garden and there's a there's a um, um, angel put there with a sword, right? And it's to prevent, explicitly, the Lord says in Genesis 3, to prevent them from eating of the tree of life. And that's why I tend to think that they haven't been given access to the tree of life previously because it seems as though the text implies that something, that's something that, that, they're not able to receive at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, anything else? Any other questions about any of this? Yeah, let's look at 
Genesis 3. Beginning in verse 22, the very end of that chapter. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Um, so something mysterious but real happened uh, when they ate of that tree. Remember that the Satan said, you'll be like God if you eat of this tree. And it, it seems as though in some sense that happened. Um, now, lest he, that is the man, uh, reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat. And this is why I think they had not yet been given access to the tree of life um, and live forever. Um, so there's almost this idea that the tree of life will give them this eternal life, um, um, be, you know, on their own terms, so to speak. Uh, therefore, Yahweh, the Lord God, sent them or sent him and Eve with him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Um, so yeah, they were driven out of the garden, um, certainly as a, as a sort of picture of um, the broken fellowship with God that they experienced, um, but also the explicit reason that's given in the text is so that they would not take hold of the tree of life on their own terms and eat it and live forever um, to prevent them from further sin, essentially, is, I think. And now, of course, we believe, and we're going to talk about this, in the covenant of grace, we're given access to the tree of life. As it turns out, the tree of life is a name, right? His name is our Lord Jesus. Um, there are all sorts of ways we could talk about that um, being uh, the case. And one of the fascinating things that takes place in Luke 24, right, is... Um, when Jesus um, breaks the bread with the disciples that don't recognize him at first, for a long time actually, um, their eyes are opened and they see him and they know who he is and they partake, right? They eat um, um, in, that, in that story. And um, that's a fascinating picture, I think, of what is given to us, what is restored to us. Um, our eyes are opened in a way that is um, good and we partake of the tree of life even um, in our worship, in, our, in the sacrament, um, in the word, and um, we live forever. And I think that's the idea of what takes place in Jesus. Jesus is given to us as the tree of life um, in the right time, in the right way. Um, all right, let me, let me keep moving, see how far we can get here in terms of covering the rest of this chapter. On your back page, um, we see that... <coughs> What happens after the covenant of works? Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, he's no longer capable of personal and perfect obedience uh, because of his sin. The Lord was pleased. Again, notice that word, the repetition of that word. Um, it's God's pleasure, his voluntary condescension. The Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. 
And then Westminster Larger 31 um, further illuminates this covenant of grace and says the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. And of course, the primary exegetical underpinning of that, I mean, we could talk about biblical theology, but in terms of specific proof text, is found in Romans 5, where we read about how through Adam sin and death enter the world, but through Christ um, there is redemption and forgiveness and righteousness. Um, Christ is the second, properly termed, the second Adam. Um, Paul also uses similar language in 1 Corinthians 15, um, about Christ being the second Adam in that way. And, and, and where, where Adam dies, Christ um, lives and is risen from the dead. Um, so to go back to that structure again, um, who are the parties in the covenant of grace? And the covenant of grace, we believe, was, is signified in Genesis 3, um, where even before God curses Adam and Eve, um, first he makes a promise to them, right, as he's cursing the servant. Um, he says that um, uh, the serpent, uh, the seed of the woman, um, you shall um, strike his heel, but he shall bruise your head or crush your head. Um, that the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent would have enmity between one another um, and um, the serpent would ultimately be crushed. And within that image in Genesis 3, the picture there is um, not only the serpent being crushed, but all that the ser serpent has wrought there in Genesis 3 in terms of sin and death and um, the, the eradication of man's relationship to God, um, that will be undone, that will be taken away, that will be destroyed um, by the seed of the woman. And of course the seed, um, we could talk about um, Genesis or Galatians, the seed um, of the woman um, is, is our Lord Jesus Christ um, ultimately. Um, so that covenant of grace is married. So, so uh, the parties of the covenant of grace, which is made there immediately upon um, the fall is God, and Jesus as the second Adam, Christ as the second Adam. Um, and in Christ, um, as the new federal head of humanity, um, all of the elect um, who are uh, brought into that covenant through their union with him, all the elect as his seed. Um, there's a great deal of biblical theology that goes into that idea, but th those are the two parties in the covenant of grace. Um, we are party to the covenant of grace, but not on our own merit, we have a head, a representative, who is our Lord Jesus. Um, the promises um, of the covenant of grace um, is, um, again, life, right? Eternal life. Um, we would live forever um, with God. And the um, condition of the covenant of grace is faith and repentance um, for those who are in Christ. Um, but as the catechism says, um, or sorry, as the confession says, so right, the confession says that, um, you know, he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation. That's the promise of the covenant of grace by Jesus Christ. He requires of those who are in the covenant of grace faith in him that they might be saved. And then he promises to give all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And so God actually gives us, we believe, in the covenant of grace, the thing that he requires, right? He doesn't require anything from us that he does not give. If it was, you know, up to us to, to um, um, give the kind of faith and repentance that would be necessary um, for our participation in the covenant of grace, we would be helpless and hopeless. Um, we would be unable to 
um, to keep this covenant, but we believe that we are able to keep the covenant of grace um, because we have um, a head that is better than Adam, uh, far better, uh, one who uh, joins us with him, who gives us his righteous obedience, his faith, um, his trust in the Lord, and does this by his Holy Spirit, um, which unites us to him, um, which is um, how we have um, the faith that God requires. Questions about any of that? Bavink, um, Dutch theologian, um, died in 1921. I love his work. He says, This covenant of grace already begins immediately after the fall. And this is another sort of thing to contemplate. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what would have happened if the covenant of grace had not been made. Um, but he says, had the full punishment of sin been immediately carried out, in that first human couple, the whole human race would have been annihilated, the earth laid waste, and caused the cosmos would have returned to chaos or nothingness. Um, everything hinges on God um, immediately uh, moving into a new covenant with us, the covenant of grace um, upon our sin and rebellion against him. Um, otherwise, um, humanity would have had a very short and um, depressing history. <clears throat> Paragraph four, the cov this covenant of grace is frequently set forth in the scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. Um, this uh, paragraph Ferguson comments um, in this paragraph that it's one of the more exegetically weak paragraphs in the confession, uh, he says. Um, I appreciate Ferguson's willingness just to be really honest about the confession as a document. Largely, this paragraph is based on um, the King James translation um, of the Bible, which was used at the time, and, and often the word that we now translate as covenant in our more modern versions uh, was translated as testament, right? Testament meaning uh, having a connection to like will and testament. Um, and um, so, for example, in the King James, all the passages in the Gospels that are institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus uh, says, um, this is um, um, the, the blood of the New Testament, um, as, as opposed to we would say the New Covenant um, within all. So, so part of the reason for this paragraph is just even the shift in language that's taking place um, and really the, the 17th century is a time where covenant theology is really just beginning to be um, codified and, and really, you know, um, used theologically. Um, the, like I said, the confession is the first confession to use this language. And, um, and of course, the King James Version it predates the confession by about uh, 40 years or so. And so that's a big part of why this paragraph is there is talking about um, the name of a testament. Um, five and six, I want to move through this quickly because I think this is really important. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel, um, meaning the Old and New Testament, essentially. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all four signifying Christ to come which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit, right? The Spirit is operating in the Old 
Testament. We want to hold on to that. To instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah. How did the elect participate in the covenant of grace? They had faith in the promised Messiah. They did not earn their salvation somehow by um, keeping God's law perfectly. By whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is called the Old Testament. How did the Old Testament saints have eternal life through the death of Jesus Christ? Um, by him, they had full remission of their sins. Under the gospel, this is referring to the New Testament, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, so the, the substance of the, the covenant all throughout, including in those um, 4,000 years or so in which the Old um, uh, Testament covers, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments and the Lord's Supper. So no longer sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, all of that is done away with <clears throat> and replaced by the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments and the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, this is something that is profoundly true. Um, your experience here on Sunday morning is profoundly simple, um, profoundly so. And if you could have lived right in the first century and seen what took place at the temple uh, day by day, the smell, the incense, the, um, the animals everywhere, the, the heat, the, all of the, pe everything it was just overwhelming in terms of the, the glory and just the, the messiness of it, um, of the sacrificial system. And what we do now is uh, far less impressive in some sense, and yet the confession says, yet in them, in the sacraments and the word, um, uh, Christ is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, right? So this is another big shift that happens in the New Testament is the, the covenant being expanded in terms of um, uh, to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. They didn't use that word dispensations because they're dispensationalists. Dispensationalism had not yet been invented, would not be invented for several hundred more years. Um, so that they're just talking about basically um, there, are, there are not two covenants of grace. There's one covenant of grace, the same substance. What's the substance in both covenants of grace? Jesus Christ. Um, the same, the same, the same. Um, there are different dispensations or administrations of that covenant of grace um, as redemptive history moves forward. Let me read this quote from Bavink and then I'll see what you have to say, Jeremy. Um, Bavink says, and this is, this is such a fundamentally important point to how we read and appreciate the Old Testament, friends. If we think somehow the Old Testament is a different kind of religion, it's a different kind of a relating to God, God requires different things of us then that he does now. Uh, it ceases to become Christian scripture. This, in order for us to benefit from the Old Testament, is something more than just a, you know, sort of a picture book of how things used to be. We this, is, this, is, this covenant theology frees us, friends, to read the Old Testament for what it is, uh, the word of God applicable to our lives today. Bavink says, the Father is the eternal Father, the Son, the eternal mediator, the Holy Spirit, the eternal paraclete. For that reason, the Old Testament is to be viewed as one in essence and substance with the New Testament. 
For though God communicates his revelation successively and historically and makes it progressively richer and fuller, and humankind therefore advances in the knowledge, possession, and enjoyment of that revelation, God is and still remains the same. Yes, humanity matures in Christ Jesus in a new way. There is a maturing of the covenant that takes place and our experience of it. But it is the same covenant, it's the same God. The sun only gradually illumines the earth, but itself remains the same morning and evening, during the day and the night. The sun's the same. Um, although Christ completed his work only in the midst of history, and although the Holy Spirit was not poured out till the day of Pentecost, God was nevertheless already in the Old Testament to fully distribute the benefits to be acquired and applied by the Son and the Spirit. Old Testament believers were saved in no other way than we. There is one faith, one mediator, one way of salvation, and one covenant of grace. Or as Paul says in Corinthians, they all drank the spiritual drink, all followed the same rock, and that rock was Christ, he says, um, because he knows that they, the Old Testament believers could have been saved in no other way than through Jesus Christ. Uh, friends, just to, the Old Testament saints had the Holy Spirit. Um, they were, <laughs> all of these things are given to them. Yes, there is maturation. Yes, there is something um, new in a, in a limited sense um, in the new covenant in terms of the way that we access all of these things, um, but it is the same covenant of grace. And that's all the time we have. You can ask me after. It's all you, Paul. <clears throat> I'll pray for us as you come up. Father, thank you for this um, teaching of the confession. Help us to grapple with it, wrestle with it in our own lives, um, and give us the grace to trust um, in you and your covenant-keeping nature that you've shown us in your son, Jesus. Amen.